Hi, everyone. Back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting. Unscripted, Peter? I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now over to our episode. Let's go. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to another ESEC Lending Insights. This is Brooke Gilman, and I get the host chair today. Maybe Jim wants to make me scoot over a little bit, and he might somewhat co-host with me. We have Jim Maroney here today. Heads up, obviously, our equity and corporate bond trading, and also Mr. Mike Brooks. Mike heads up our fixed income government trading space, as well as short-term investments. And it's a big day because it is Mike's birthday Listeners, what I've done so far on this call, but I did it before we started recording just to spare all of you, but we just sang to him. So if anyone else knows Mike in the market, feel free. It is May 12th. You can mark it on your calendar, do it as an annual reoccurrence. And that day, you know to call him, give him a little happy birthday song. Mike, how are you Now that you said that, our three listeners are going to request that we sing. (laughs) You, Jim, did you hear? You probably don't listen to these podcasts when you're not on them. And I know you don't listen when you are on them either way. But I had some commentary at the last podcast with Matt Chesum about you and your fan base and our three listeners. So you might want to tune in to the end of the last podcast. Well, no singing, but happy birthday, Mike. Thanks, guys. I'll have you sing after, Jim. Okay. (laughs) All right. Okay. So there's a lot going on in the market. We're here in almost mid-May. The debt ceiling is looming supposedly for maybe as early as a June one date, which feels like a really dark cloud, even though it's been amazing spring weather across the Northeast. So we thought first we would start with Mike. That's why Jim and I wanted to bring Mike on today just to talk to us a little bit about the debt ceiling and what that means, of course, for the markets broadly, but maybe specifically for the treasury markets as well as short-term cash investments. And then Jim, you have a lot going on, I know as well. We have a ton of auctions coming up. There's a lot going on in the U.S. equity space in terms of specials activity, I know. So we also want to hear from you, but why don't we start with Mike? Jim, do you want to kick <coughs> off any questions to him or should we just give him the general floor to recap us on his views on the debt ceiling issues? Yeah, a quick rates update and then how debt ceiling affects the rates market is interesting to me, both on the reinvest side as well as the lending side, asset and liabilities. I'm curious, you're going to make me smart. Mike, are you going to try, which is a tall order? I'm going to attempt to. Yeah, we can start there. The debt sale, obviously, is something that's picked up chatter really the last couple of weeks. We are approaching the kind of ex-state window for some time now, but I think it really took Yellen to come out and say that she thinks that the Treasury is going to really exhaust its cash bucket by June 1st. This pushed that window up really a couple of weeks and even months, depending on who you were talking to. And what it's done is it's made some of the streets start moving up their date as well. Obviously, as we're sitting here on May 12th, that's pretty close. And we had Biden already meet with Congress earlier in this week. Basically, all that came from it was both sides agreed that they do not want to go into a default and they want to have a resolution. Nothing came from it. So we've had continued budget discussions this week, and then Biden and top members of Congress are meeting again today. So we're getting at some point that a resolution has to be made. I think a lot of market participants think just really from a precedent historical standpoint, that something's going to get done inevitably. And it might just come down to the wire. So really, depending on which way you're looking at it, there's been some interesting dynamics in the market, both from a repo and from a reinvest perspective. 
I guess we'll start on the reinvest side. You're seeing the bills that are kind of in this danger zone. So think that June, July maturity dates really start to cheapen compared to the rest of the market. So we had the one and two month bill auctions last week, and there were some just really major distortions and dislocations in those. You saw the auction on the one month bill go as high as 584, you know, a hundred plus BIP premium dates a month prior to it. So what you're seeing right now is really the short bills, the May bills are really rich in because you're seeing large funds just not want to participate in any of these bills and just piling cash in that's driving down the yield. And you're seeing auction sizes remain the same size in the one and two month bills, but you're seeing just less demand there. So the yields are really blowing out there. And then when you go a little further into the latter part of Q3, early to Q4, some people are seeing that as the safety zone. The market's going much more normalized there. So depending on which way you're looking at it, you're seeing hedge funds stay away from these bills because their prime brokers are just unable or reluctant to fund these. Some real money accounts are seeing these as buying opportunities because they think the opportunity cost of the yield pickup incrementally outweighs the cost of maybe not getting your proceeds back one, two, three, four days after maturity. I think everyone's in the camp that eventually your proceeds will be returned, especially as there's been just pieces out by various groups that have stated that typically in a situation like this, the government tries to pay its debt holders first. And I think most are in the camp that this is eventually going to get resolved. And for those who have strong conviction, thinking that it's going to be an up to the wire thing, but it will be resolved before the maturities, they just see this as a way to add incremental yields to the portfolio. On the lending side, it affects really us in a few ways. Obviously, the bill market, those who have bills to lend right now, are seeing tremendous value really across the curve. What you're seeing from the large money funds, you know, the big players in the repo market is they're restricting these kind of X date window bills as collateral, just not taking them back in large repo trades and looking for bills of other maturities. So what it's doing to the bills of other maturities is it's just creating a scarcity bid on them. They're in high demand. So those are really trading through in repo. I think this week, if you looked at the six month bill, you know, liquid bill considered in that safety zone now in November maturity, those traded negative this week. So, you know, you're looking at where benchmark rates are, that's 500 plus basis points through GC. So it's really some strong value there. Volumes are good size, not massive, but those who have the bills seeing high utilization and high fees. It's also affecting the coupon market and even just overall treasury lending, even outside of bills. So notes and bonds and just traditional GC markets really not so affected right now on the overnight markets. I do think there's downward buyers in the overnight markets right now with a lot of cash in the market, typically up to debt sailing dates. You see the treasury scale back on borrowing up to the dates because they're getting close to that cap. And what that means for the market is treasury scaling back on borrowing means just less issuance of collateral. So typically funding is a little softer. But what everyone's anticipating is once a resolution is inevitably achieved, there's going to be a ton more supply in the market just because the treasury will be able to borrow again. So the number that's been thrown around has been about $1 trillion in the back half of the year. And so depending on who you talk to is how much this could affect funding markets, right? The back half of the year is already when we start hearing these balance sheet chatters again as we get closer to year end and other regulatory reasons why borrowers might not want to intermediate the market with cash. But what about Q2 quarter end? I mean, that's kind of a weird one being that hopefully you have debt ceiling resolution in advance of that quarter end. 
And I mean, are you already getting a feel for what quarter might look like? Or could you really have to almost wait and see what happens with the debt ceiling? Resolution? Yeah, I think it's wait and see. I think right now we were trying to get kind of early indications on where that kind of market's trading right now. I haven't seen a lot go through there on screen. We are still seeing bids into the market. It doesn't feel like so right, that one to two month kind of part of the curve doesn't seem like we're seeing premiums above and beyond of what I would have typically expected to pay really where we're starting to see that kind of build in a little bit is in the four, five, six, seven month part of the curve where they're just expecting funding markets to be a little heavier. And also you kind of see this in, if you look at the Fed funds versus SOFR forward markets. For the last couple of years, SOFR has tracked below that below Fed funds. It got as wide as 14 basis points to a point, but on average, I'd probably say somewhere in the five to six range. You're now seeing SOFR curve in the forward markets, so kind of pricing ahead of Fed funds. So to me, that just shows the market is expecting kind of some turbulence in the overall repo market. And I think a large part of that is, is just going to be when the debt sale is resolved and then the treasury can borrow again, you're going to see just a large amount of collateral. And I think some are unsure of that dynamic between okay, well, the RRP still has two point something trillion. So won't that number be enough to absorb the new collateral? Kind of looking back in March quarter end, that dynamic didn't happen as people as expected. I think they saw as funding increase and there's other assets above that RRP level that people would just reverse out of that, out of the Fed and put into other assets. I think as you start seeing some of this banking crisis still looming around the market, I think people are reluctant to take that money away from the Fed and put it into other assets. So I think that one for one dynamic of more collateral on the street and then a reversal of the IRP might not happen one for one. It might take a slower grind down. I was glad Brooke jumped in. You're rolling downhill. I was afraid to get in there and get steamrolled. It's a lot of good information. I have a bunch of questions for you and I'm an equity guy, so bear with me. So bills between now and when resolutions expected, you said cheapens in the June, July timeframe and richened in May. That's from a buying standpoint, right? That's so what, yeah, that's, that's cash market. Those okay. cash long looking for buying opportunities. And so one question there is, and this is more background for me, I guess, is that pure long buying and selling or are there shorting of bills there? And so this typically on the long ends, so, you know, large, mostly money fund state accounts driving a lot of that flow. We are seeing some still directional shorts in the bills in that time as well. And I think that can really be seen in some of these issues in, in the repo market. Okay. So are bills historically just collateral or is there a play there with bills typically? So you said you're yes. seeing some of these QCIPs trading 500 bips special. That has to be a directional play, right? Yeah, some people use it as a balance sheet creation play. Some people do directional plays. And I think just with the continuous maturity cycle in bills and maybe some of them in smaller volumes and some of the coupons across the curve, you see just a lot of dislocations in this market. Okay. And so if I'm a bill holder today, big portfolio of bills, I'm making a ton of money lending it out. What happens after resolution to that same portfolio? Does it go back to GC? Is there still some specialness? Yeah, I don't think it'll go back to GC. I think they have a wide spectrum of bills. Some will trade closer to GC, but I think there'll always be some dislocation in some of the more liquid bills in, for different, as you said, collateral plays or just directional shorts. I do think there will be probably maybe not as much of a squeeze as we're seeing around some of this debt ceiling talk, but a lot of them use it for different balance sheet creation plays as well. That seems to be pretty sticky. And just from a borrower appetite perspective, 
they're by far the highest asset class that we get asked about if we have any in our program. And we don't always line up on it and typically we don't, but it's definitely something that those who have large portfolios, A, are higher earners right now, but I think that that will be the case throughout the rest of the year as well. Has that always been the case? Like for the last three or four years, have you always been seeing higher locates for bills than you would say on on the run for like a five or 10 year? Yeah, definitely the last three or four years, especially when you started seeing some of this bill issuance from a borrowing capacity for some of the stimulus and small business loan type money just in the very, very beginning of COVID, right? So that's now three plus years ago. So it's been pretty steady. I think we're definitely seeing it pick up this year, but it's been a healthy locate base for the better part of three or four years. This might be an unfair question, Mike, but for me, when I think about treasuries, just in general, for me, it's collateral usually in taking it as collateral, whether it's against corporate bonds we're lending or equities we lend. And so when you think about that and the market dynamics, how expensive do you think pledging treasuries in any fashion or either a subset of treasuries specifically, how expensive has that become for borrowers? So obviously if they own treasuries or they're long treasuries and they're trying to move them, they don't want to give them to me as collateral. But like, what are we thinking on a go forward basis? Are people going to see giving me treasuries as a benefit or a cost? Yeah, I mean, I think it it would probably be more of a cost. And this is just my opinion as, especially if we're hanging out at higher rates, just looking at the amount of cash, right? I think for you're seeing your side, borrowers wanting to pledge cash. Yeah. And I think just as less maybe treasury collateral, at least on the long end of the curve side is in the market, I think maybe they'll be asked to, to hold on to this stuff more. I also think if you're looking at some of the banking stuff in the market as well, we saw this kind of the beginning of COVID. A lot of those trades, the reverse of the trade you're talking about is non-cash trades where people are taking in U.S. treasuries, basically versus any currency set people were looking to do this, right? Because they just wanted the HQLA on their books. So now that they're long treasuries, now I don't see them wanting to do the opposite in these trades. To put a cost to it, I don't know an actual basis point, cost of capital or things like that, but I imagine that upcoming auctions or even kind of non-cash trades, you'd be seeing probably people want it opting for cash. Yeah. I wasn't asking really for the actual cost, but more directionally, how to be thinking about it and what to expect. Yeah, that was helpful. Thank you. Mike, that was super helpful. Anecdotally, I don't know if it's all that helpful. And I am far from being any expert on pretty much anything, but especially politics. But I heard a Mm -hmm. podcast that was talking about, you know, the debt ceiling and potential solutions around it. And obviously what the negotiations were this week between the speaker and the president and the different pathway options that maybe the two sides have. And there's probably not many, but there are some out there, but then a pretty extreme option that maybe the administration has if they can't reach agreement. And it goes back to, I guess, the 14th Amendment, which is the amendment that was born out of the Civil War that abolishes slavery. And in that amendment, a section of that in the Constitution speaks to the country's debt and the need to fulfill our debt obligations. And apparently the history on it is because the North and the South and the country was divided and then it comes back together as part of the end of the Civil War and through the 14th Amendment, apparently the North, the Union was concerned. They had taken out a lot of debt to pay for the war and what they didn't want were a bunch of Southern states that were on the opposite side of it, not being willing to pay that debt of the nation. 
And so apparently there's some potential Hail Mary clause that past administrations have not gone down that path that potentially even skirts the need for Congress to ultimately agree to it. Like it's something that we're forced to do because the constitution requires it kind of concept, but I don't know. I didn't finish the podcast admittedly. So I had to get to a meeting. So who knows? Go tune in to the New York Times Daily from May 12th. There you go. Okay. Well, that was a lot on that, but Jim, maybe we can get over to you because even though the market's hugely focused around what we just talked about around the debt ceiling, there's still plenty happening, both with the ongoing banking crisis and new activity in the market on the U S equity side, but then outside of the U S market and with corporate bonds, I know that you've seen a lot of activity in the high yield space and other corporates and then beyond the U S market as well. So what do you care about today? Yeah, the U.S. equity market on the cash side has been in a range, stays range bound. And so we're active. We're busier on the GC side. There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of adding, as Mike noted, cash collateral continues to be an important piece of what we're doing every day to make revenue for our clients. And it keeps us busier than normal. So if you think about what we pay traders to do, it's typically trade specials and generate value there. And then we automate the GC piece. But today, less of it's automated. There's more trader interaction because there's more negotiation around pricing and cash loans. And so that's kept us quite busy. But isn't that driven? I mean, that's less about the systematic need for more trader interaction. Isn't that driven more by the desire for the type of cash balance and what's driving the demand for the trade on our side, on the lender side, that you have the traders Uh negotiating those enhanced cash trades or no? I know what you're saying. A better way to think about it is typically GC is predetermined buckets of business that you can trade automatically because it doesn't require any pricing trader to trader. In today's market, you can do that if somebody wants certain... IBM, because it comes from an RWA-friendly lender, you can automate that. And people do automate that. We automate that. But no, it's more negotiated trades around needs for cash. Either our clients want cash, a borrower needs to place cash, needs to borrow something, a basket. So it's more negotiated GC trading than we've seen in a number of years. And and to support those on an ongoing basis takes manual intervention typically. Just for clarity, we were saying the same thing. We just said it very differently. Oh, we did? Okay. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Well, good. Maybe your version is better. I'm glad we're on the same page, Brooke. We are. Specials are the regional banks. There's four or five names that are trading special. There's a lot of noise around short sale ban in the U.S. on financials. And, you know, I really don't think what we're seeing in the cash market is being driven by shorts. Maybe it's exaggerating or accentuating kind of movements we're going to see otherwise, but it feels more like long selling to me based on the book of business we have and the need we see to borrow regional banks. There's hundreds of them and we have three or four trading special and the rest sitting in the box. So not really a big play, but specials in general are in focus and pricing power seems to be, I say this every couple of months and then don't say it for a year, but we seem to have pricing power. So spring is where our heavy US equity and corporate bond auctions are. June, we have, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think six auctions, five or six in June. So excited to see what the market tells us as we go through that process. But I suspect it's going to be a pretty good story year over year. It feels like we're in a good place. I do think that's why I asked the question about bonds, Mike. Corporate bonds continue to be whether mostly high yield, but in some cases, investment grade, and in many cases, emerging market debt are in demand. And so I'm curious to see what 
cheapest to pledge is from the borrowers in this market? Is it going to be cash or is it going to be G10 debt or what otherwise could be viewed as HQLA or shorts in the bill space? So we'll see. But is I'm, equity collateral for some? I know it's so dealer specific, so it's hard to make generalizations, but we made such a big push a couple of years back to diversify the flexibility of our clients' collateral profiles. And that really paid, no pun intended, dividends to the clients for those years. But do you think though, so if we put out the upcoming auctions, those lenders that do have the profile for cash or equities or could take G10, what's your view on cash being pledged versus equity collateral being pledged? And is the answer that it is just super dealer specific and there's no consistent trend? It is dealer specific. So we've seen growth in cash balances, not at the expense of equity collateral. Okay. I guess. So that's a helpful answer. Yeah. It's net growth, but it's almost all in the cash space where we're seeing growth. Now I'm speaking from our book of business and our client base. Maybe others are seeing something different. I haven't looked at market metrics because I don't prep for anything, which is ridiculous. And now I wish I had, but I think in general, you're just seeing growth in cash space, which we hadn't seen in many years. The flexibility of cash versus non-cash to some and most dealers has a lot of value. So most of the non-US banks prefer to give us non-cash, especially equities. But if their equity book shrinks, it's hard to fill those collateral sets. So you bought and you want to use it. So you need the flexibility of cash or treasuries. And so while in some instances that may not be ideal if you're doing a lot with that cash reinvest. So we need to find ways to create some stability for our clients as we go through these auctions, but yet still have the flexibility of using both cash and non-cash as collateral to satisfy the borrowers. So that's a big part of what we'll do through this auction season, I think, is balance that. The only thing outside of the US, we're winding down in div season as expected, kind of year over year, flat to up a little bit, depending on its very name specific. We hardly trade baskets outside of the U.S. for the dip trade at this point. But I think it's worth noting that we heard overnight from our our Asian traders, I haven't read it yet, but that South Korea has come out and said, it doesn't look like they're going to lift the short sell ban anytime soon. I think they were targeting April 24. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is different than what we had heard in past. Yeah, we were sort of expecting it to happen by now, I thought. Yeah, we were expecting to happen right around now as they were looking for inclusion in some indices. So, yeah, so they've essentially punted it a year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So okay. that was disappointing, but um, we'll, we'll see how the market takes that and what it does to the borrow market and shorts in South Korea. But okay. Well, good update. Probably. Thank you. Breaking news, everyone. Breaking. <laughs> uh, at least breaking news amongst the three of us. How about that? That's right. Yeah. The market probably knew about it three months ago, but I just found out. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You've learned a lot this week, Jim. When it comes to me, though, you've learned that I can't actually swing a golf club. Mm-hmm. I was impressed. Out well, but you know, it happens. It has yeah. been known to happen. And Mike, you don't know this, but I've found a new skill, which is that I have also been a mascot. I got to be the little league mascot last night and it was pretty exciting for me, actually. I'm hoping. What is the little league mascot? What's the well, theme of it? <laughs> the little league mascot's name is bandit. And it, I believe is a uh, raccoon. Maybe a raccoon, yeah, some sort of forest animal, it seems. Yeah, it was hard to watch. It was really hard to watch. And I would ask you to not send me any videos like that again, please. Oh, video. I was like, wait, why were you at the Little League failed, Jim? Yeah, no, I'll I'll send it to you, Mike. Anyone else enjoys humor. And it's like the Pied Piper. All the little little kids at their big brothers and sisters game were following around the mascot dancing. Totally. 
totally. Yeah, I was a big hit. The thing though that I learned, this is why I want to do it again, because I definitely think I could improve upon my mascotting skills. They allow me to come back is because I wanted to amp up the crowd and there was a lack of other ways to amp up the crowd, meaning we didn't have an announcer. I thought the music selection and the sound level could have been, you know, a little bit better, things like that. I spoke, I used my voice. I got people riled up that way. And it was a totally rookie move. Mascots should never speak. And so I stopped it. Like once I realized that that was not a good idea, but unfortunately after my daughter heard and then figured out it was me and then was Mm, told all her friends was speculating with all of her little friends who was the mascot. So anyway, sounds like you don't have much of a career in mascotting. (laughs) I'm hoping to get a second chance. (laughs) Anyway. All right. So we'll be back soon. Listeners. There's a lot of activity next week is the Fanadium conference in New York. The week following that is the Casla conference in Toronto. Then we have the Isla conference upcoming in Lisbon, Portugal, I think maybe roughly the third week of June. So there's a lot of market activity, a lot of opportunity for the market to come together and discussion. There's also been Securities Finance Times Symposium was last week in Boston. And then the week prior was the RMA Ops and Tech in New York. So I got to think that all of these industry gatherings and meetings of the brain trust will result in more activity and more solutioning for this marketplace throughout this year. So we'll keep you updated along the way. And any other closing remarks, Mike or Jim? Thanks for joining me today, guys. No, our pleasure. Everybody have a nice weekend. It's Friday. Nice Friday as well. Yes, it's your birthday. Do you have any big birthday plans tonight? I don't have anything. I do know that it also falls on Mother's Day weekend, but Celtics game seven is going to dilute my Mother's Day. So I'll have to break that to her. All right. Well, good luck. I looked at my family calendar and saw that both tomorrow morning and importantly on Sunday morning, Mother's Day, in our calendar was dad and my son's name is Grant, dad and Grant golf, 8 a.m. And I'm like, Whoa, hello. wait a minute. It's not how it works. Yeah, and exactly. Play- exactly. And they're playing 36 holes that day. Right, exactly. All right, good. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you with something interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities. And friends, don't forget to subscribe to ESEC Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. Thank you for listening.